Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bold Sidebar. This is your host, Jeff Horn. I have been a little spotty this summer, summer of 2021. It's the middle of August now. I won't alibi, but I will tell you, those that don't know this, I am a candidate for public office. Hence, I have been getting a jump on the campaigning season. I'm running for the township council in Tom Jurer, in my ward, Ward 2. And it's a big ward with lots of folks in it. And, uh, of course, we have vote by mail. So that there will be eight or 9,000 votes cast way in advance of Election Day. Folks can start casting their ballots as soon as they receive them in the mail, which will be by the end of September. Hence, doing my thing, going door to door, having a good time doing it. Only one person has told me to go F myself and only one person has shot me with weed uh, killer. But besides that, good times on the campaign trail. Just been taking up a good chunk of time. Let's get into the cases now. Back in the day, the New Jersey Superior Court was closed for the month of August. Those days are long gone, and certainly our current New Jersey Supreme Court can never be characterized as sort of taking a break. They're always working, and they've dropped a bunch of opinions. I'm going to speak to essentially four opinions today. One is consolidated, so it'll be three segments. But before I get to that, let's just get a little bit of news. I guess the big news is that Justice Lavecchia who would have been wrapping up her time on the court here at the end of August, has agreed to extend on to the end of 2021. She was not retiring because she had reached the mandatory age. She had served on the court for a long time and was going to do other things. We got a nominee which I haven't heard anyone say is not qualified, Rachel Wayner Apter, who is a lawyer and a leader in the Civil Rights Division of the Attorney General's Office now. And she's the nominee in waiting, but political wins as they are, gubernatorial election year, there were just not going to be hearing dates to accommodate the nomination for Ms. Apter. So we were going to be in that dreaded situation where we've got an even number of justices, three, three. And then we wind up like we have with the uh, Michelle Lodzinski case, a three, three per curiam decision where, frankly, the uh, dissent is very passionate saying, you know, here we've got a tie. Tie goes to the state. Tie goes to the lower ruling. And uh, Lodzinski's conviction is upheld by the Supreme Court on a per curiam opinion 3-3. Justice Rapner did not participate. So Lodzinski's lawyers have filed an application to have the matter reheard with an odd number of justices by bringing up a justice from the appellate division. So that's still pending out there. Let's get into the cases. And on their surface, they may not seem like the most exciting cases, but I think they kind of are interesting. The first case applies to all of us who drive cars in New Jersey. Well, that's virtually every adult. We are a suburban state. You pretty much have to drive to get around. There is a statute NJSA 39-3-33. It deals with obstructed license plates. And the cases are State v. Darius Carter and State v. Miguel Roman Rosado. The opinions are rolled out together. 
and they tell us that there are some 100,000 cases per year that deal with obstructed license plates in the state. 100,000, a lot of cases. And the interpretation has been that if part of the plate is blocked, that the police are well within their rights under the statute to make a motor vehicle stop. The undercurrent here is that it's so discretionary as to almost be arbitrary because tons of license plates are obstructed in some form or fashion by those fancy uh, license plate holders. Certainly, I would find myself in that boat from time to time with some of my license plate holders. I don't think the ones coming from my favorite dealer, that would be the Ray Katina family, but you see them all the time and vanity, license plate holders, etc. A message, a political message, a message of peace, love and harmony. All those messages on those license plate holders could get you in hot water under the statute. The Supreme Court says not so fast. It's our job to promote liberty amongst our citizens. So let's try to get some clarity and take it away from the relative discretion to an individual police officer or department or tactical team that might be out trying to take some proactive steps. So let's just talk about the two cases quickly. So for defendant Carter, the entire words on the bottom of the plate, Garden State, were covered. Carter is stopped, and it turns out, driving without a driver's license, two warrants, and a quantity of cocaine on him. He makes an attempt to suppress the cocaine based upon the stop being pretextual. Those applications are denied. He gets to the Supreme Court on this license plate obstruction issue. Put him to the left side for the minute. Roman Rosado, part of the words Garden State on the bottom and part of the NJ at the top of the license plate are blocked. However, the words Garden State and the abbreviation for our state NJ are recognizable. You can tell what they are. They're partially blocked, but uh, they're discernible. Roman Rosado is stopped. He's got two warrants. He's got a handgun in the car. He files also to suppress evidence obtained during the stop because the stop is pretextual, utilizing the slight blockage on the license plate. So the court makes a clear pronouncement here. And I, I like this when, when we have cases that put the police in a mode of uncertainty and motorists in a mode of uncertainty. So the Supreme Court says, if the words Garden State and the NJ and every other aspect of the license plate are recognizable, in other words, they're not completely blocked, then there is no need for the stop. So essentially, the Supreme Court has clarified obstruction under the statute 39-3-33, so that as long as the essence of the license plate is recognizable, the elements of it, rather not the essence, the elements of it are recognizable, no stop is appropriate. So Roman Rosado is cut loose. On the other hand, Carter, who's got the entire two words, Garden State blocked, that is a clear violation of the statute, and the police are well within the four corners of the statute to stop people. And if you've tempted fate and you've got a bunch of other problems, 
beware. Don't block your license plate. It just gives one other reason for you to get stopped and get jammed up on your warrants, your drug possession, etc. A couple editorial comments about this. First of all, it's the summertime. I, for one, have a hitch on a couple of my vehicles, and oftentimes I have my bike rack inserted into the hitch with or without bikes on it. You cannot see the license plate at all. I've never been stopped. Uh, I've never even been given a warning or the police say, hey, you got to take that bike rack off if you're not actively transporting bikes. After this ruling, I went into the parking lot of my gym with a couple of my police officer gym friends and started looking at a bunch of the plates. Ironically enough, one of the great guys that goes to the gym, a high-ranking police officer in the state of New Jersey, has his private vehicle and the bottom of Garden State and the top of NJ are blocked. Now, he's in good shape now, but prior to this ruling, the police could have easily stopped one of our fine officers because the words were partially blocked. I also just want to say from a, a societal standpoint, we are taking away things that police have done for decades or a hundred years, uh, step by step. And there's a guy named Dr. Carl Hart. He's a professor at Columbia University. I heard him speaking on the Joe Rogan podcast. Interesting guy, very interesting, way beyond this mere comment that I'm recollecting. And he, he said because of the war on drugs ending, that we're going to have to come up with something for the police to do. Indeed, if you read the news, watch the news at all in New Jersey, the attorney general has essentially said, hands off on young folks that might be smoking marijuana, drinking booze. Unless there's sort of a crime being committed, the police are being told to back way off their their sort of community policing, community safety-oriented tasks. So we're in a tremendous transition phase here, and I I am sincere when I talk to law enforcement officers. Some are you know, my age, so they're out the door or near the door. Then you've got middle-of-their-career officers who have been trained to spot things, and once you spot and you investigate, you then dig and you find drugs or guns or people with warrants, and that's part of your job. That's kind of your success paradigm is ears open, eyes open, and taking proactive action. When you see something small, it oftentimes leads to something bigger. Well, if we stop the police from being involved in something small, I'm not endorsing or not endorsing this position here. We we have to know the police are going to be confused, institutionally confused, and then individually are going to have to be trained to spot the important things and let certain things go. I understand from a societal standpoint, what's traditionally happened is Uh, minorities were targeted by many of the sort of small violations, motor vehicle and otherwise, and uh, wound up being way, way disproportionately charged and convicted and, and certainly held in jail when we had a bail system. So there's a policy for this. It's not a random occurrence, but, but there's a lot to be done. There's an interplay between what's on the books, uh, what the police are being told on a top-down basis, and metrics by which policing is measured. 
Time was, certainly, we've all heard this about police officers having ticket quotas and so forth. Well, if you incentivize people in their careers by certain metrics, and then you bar them from utilizing some of the means by which they reach their numbers, something's got to give. They may well want to be overzealous in some other areas, or they may go the other way and uh, sort of throw their hands up in the air. We've seen this in some cities where the police just let things happen because they are kind of stuck in indecision in a bureaucratic quagmire that conflicts with their training and experience. So there's a lot of work to be done. So this is not just a boring license plate case. It, to me, it really reflects on societal issues that we're addressing nationwide. And it's worthwhile for everyone to go check their license plate and make sure that the words uh, Garden State and the uh, initials NJ and all the other parts of the license plate are at least recognizable. That'll keep you out of hot water. And my guess is there won't be 100,000 obstructed license plates stops going forward. The next case, Gonzalez v. City of Jersey City. Jersey City, hometown for me and many of my relatives. This is a one-car accident. The police respond, and they put the motorist in the pedestrian walkway. They follow the air protocol to offer to give the motorist a ride somewhere within the boundaries of Jersey City, or make sure the motorist is in a safe place. So as far as the police can tell, he's in a safe place. He's in a pedestrian walkway. He refuses a ride from the police. He indicates he will wait for his brother to come pick him up. The police call it into dispatch. The guy's going to wait for a ride from his brother, and they go on. They've got a busy Saturday night, lots of calls. So they're off to, you know, one would imagine, something else that may be more pressing than a one-car accident. The guy obviously was not terribly injured. Well, the guy, Mr. Gonzalez, doesn't stay put. Somehow he wanders into the roadway, is struck and killed. So when I say the case is Gonzalez, is really the estate of Gonzalez, New Jersey City. It further turns out that he's got a blood alcohol content of 0.209, so two and a half times the 0.08 limit that's uh, prescribed by our DUI statutes. The police officers both indicate that he did not appear intoxicated. So the question here essentially is under the Tort Claims Act. And we've got our, we've got a Good Samaritans law and we also have the Tort Claims Act. Well, the Tort Claims Act is designed to immunize government activities. And in this case, the Supreme Court finds that there is a factual dispute as to whether the decision by the police officers to let Mr. Gonzalez stay put is ministerial or discretionary. What's important about that? Under the Tort Claims Act, police handle their ministerial acts, i.e., in this case, showing up to aid a motorist as a result of an accident. That's ministerial, and the police need to follow their protocols. And in the case that they don't follow their proper ministerial protocols, a lower negligence standard applies in the case of a claim. 
the question here, the question for the jury on remand is whether the decision by the police to let Mr. Gonzalez stay put and await a ride from his brother is ministerial or discretionary. If it's discretionary, then the standard is much higher, i.e. a gross negligence standard versus the lower, you know, again, I'm not going to give you a Tort Claims Act lesson here, but the lower negligence type standard that is applicable when the police are acting in their ministerial capacity. So it's actually kind of an interesting case. Most of the Tort Claims Act cases are very, very technical. Um, this I don't find so technical. Some jury is going to have to determine whether the, the act of the police making the decision to leave a guy who does not appear to them to be intoxicated, you know, whether there's video or other facts that might uh, contradict that, and has made a sound decision, seemingly sound decision, to wait for his brother to come pick him up, whether that's ministerial or discretionary. So kind of interesting. We'll see if that one pops back up on the radar at some point in the future. It's probably a pretty big deal in the Tort Claims Act realm. Last one for today is State v. Paulino Njango, N-J-A-N-G-O, Django, if the N is silent. And this is Justice Albin writing for a unanimous court. I should say all of our cases today are unanimous. I skipped that important part. The license plate case penned by Justice Rabner, unanimous. The Jersey City, the Gonzales v. Jersey City case penned by Justice Solomon, unanimous, and then Justice Albin writing in this interesting case, which I will spare you the minutiae. In a nutshell, the defendant here is up and back, plea agreement, post-conviction relief applications. Over time, he gets sentenced for 18 years and a subsequent eight-year period of parole. For reasons that are not altogether clear, he winds up serving more than 18 years. And the reason I'm hesitating, because you have 2006 indictments and convictions, 2007 indictments, you've got the issue of concurrent versus consecutive, but those are not the issues that are litigated here. So you've got an 18-year prison sentence with a 15-year, um, three-month, 18-day parole disqualification under the No Early Release Act. So after litigation that went on, you know, again, 2006, 2007 indictments were in 2021 now, and numerous trips to the PCR court, to the Aptiv, it turns out that he served more time in prison than he should have. The appellate division found that there is no provision to uh, reduce your parole supervision term because you served additional prison time. Here, Justice Albin takes a different view, entire court takes a different view, that any case where a defendant has served more time in custody than he should have, that it is fundamental to our system of due process to take that excess prison time and take it off the parole supervision time, looking at 
the entire sentence as a unitary sentence, i.e., even if a defendant is on parole, they're still under the, the sentence and, and, and essentially still under the supervision of the corrections department. So whether you're in prison or on parole, it's, it's sort of one unified thing. You're still an inmate in the eyes of the Department of Corrections. So if you've served more time in prison, you can have that excess time taken off the parole period. So all in all, he served a year and change more than he should have in the state prison after all of his trips back and forth to the trial court, the active, and, and, and now finally to the New Jersey Supreme Court. So his uh, parole supervision time will be reduced. Seems to make a lot of sense. And uh, frankly, I believe most people would rather serve their time as a parolee than an inmate. So it seems like not the greatest bargain in the world, but a, a, an exercise of the fundamental fairness doctrine is how Justice Albin suggests it ought to be addressed in the opinion. And it all makes a lot of sense. As I say, the court does not rest in August. I'm sort of dropping these now every couple of weeks in the summer and probably through the end of the campaign, November 2nd. So uh, I hope nobody gets off track with me or forgets about us. It's my pleasure to put these out. Please do not hesitate to reach out to me. If you've got a case in the court, been to the court, heading back to the court, worked in the court, etc. As I've often shared, I'm eager to learn and eager to share some of the magic and mysteries of the New Jersey Supreme Court, and the opinions are but one piece of the puzzle. All right, that's it for today. Signing off. Thanks, everybody.